We're going to be in Ephesians again, chapter 4. And uh, I wanted to tell you about a little gospel tract that I like. I'm not a big fan of gospel tracts, at least most of them. Uh, I've seen a lot, and uh, some of them don't really communicate the, the gospel real well. Yeah, I'm assuming everybody knows what a gospel tract is, but in case you don't, a gospel tract is just a little booklet that real simply communicates the the good news of Jesus Christ. And so it's something you can use when you're sharing the gospel with somebody, maybe something that you, you give them. And so uh, when I was younger, it, w- it was really popular to have these sort of uh, bait and switch gospel tracks where it, w- it would seem interesting to somebody and then they'd begin to read it and find out it was it was something other than what they expected. I'll give you an example. I had some friends in college and it was popular for them to go out to lunch after church on Sunday. Maybe they'd go to a restaurant and they'd you know run up this bill and then uh, uh, you know you get your bill in the little fold, and then you fill it out, and then maybe you leave a tip in there. Well, they would leave this $100 bill folded in half, and they would put it in the fold, uh, and, then they, and then they would leave. And so you can imagine the excitement of a waiter or waitress when they come up and they see this $100 bill sticking out. Well, guess what? It wasn't a $100 bill. It was a gospel tract. And then you unfolded the $100 bill, and I think that's getting off on the wrong foot with somebody if you're going to do something like that. So there was a lot of them that were sort of corny, cheesy like that. But but there's one, and it's uh, it's put out by this company called Matthias Media. I think they're based in Australia. And it's called uh, There Are Two Ways to Live. And it accurately, I would say, it accurately portrays the good news of Jesus Christ and then calls for a response. Uh, the message in that little booklet, there are two ways to live, is not much different than Paul's message in this letter he writes to the Ephesians. You could break the book of Ephesians into two sections, chapters 1 and 3, the first half, and chapters 4 through 6, the second half. Those first three chapters are theological, they're about doctrine, and then those second three chapters are primarily practical. So you've got doctrine, and then you've got duty. Chapters 1 through 3 describe the gospel, how God has saved us and reconciled us to himself and to one another. And then the second half of Ephesians describes how we should live in light of that gospel. So the first half, there's things we need to know. And then the second half, now that we know these things, here's how we should live. And so the point that Paul makes in our text today is basically the title of that gospel tract I was telling you about. The point that he makes in our verses today is there are two ways 
to live. There's God's way and there's your way. There's the way of the Lord and there's the way of the world. You can follow God's way for your life or you can follow the world's way. You can live for God's glory or you can live for your own glory. But there really are. Scripture makes clear. And this passage in particular makes clear. There are two ways to live. So let's pray together and then we'll get into Paul's words. Father in heaven, we ask that through your word and by your spirit, you would teach us now. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you haven't already and you've got a Bible, would you please open to Ephesians chapter 4? And for those of you who are taking notes, or as uh, another pastor once told me, for those of you who don't like to get in the backseat of a car without knowing where it's going, here's today's three-heading outline. So I'll tell you where we're going today. Three, three steps we're going to take through this passage. And here they are. Number one, the way of the world. And that will be verses 17 through 19 of chapter 4. The way of the world. Number two, the way of Christ. That will be verses 20 through 24. And then number three, five practical applications that Paul will give. Or five relational exhortations. So we've got the way of the world, and then the way of Christ, and then five very practical applications. So let's start where Paul starts in verse 17. He's going to describe for us the, the way of the world. And this is helpful because what does that mean? What is, we talk about worldliness or uh, this or that is worldly, or we should not be worldly, or this way of the world. Well, what does that actually mean? And Paul's going to explain it. So verse 17, look with me. It begins with the word now, which means that Paul is moving on from what he's just talked about, the unity, diversity, and maturity in the church. That was the subject of verses 1 through 16. He says, now, so he's moving on. And he moves on in verses 17 through 19 to describe the way of the world. And that's the way that most of us Christians used to live. And Paul is warning us here not to fall back into it. This way of the world. Verse 17 now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. And remember, when Paul uses this word walk, he doesn't mean that literally. He uses it seven times. He's not talking about the way you take physical steps. He's talking about the way you live. That's what your walk is or the way you walk. It's, it's how you think and the way you act. It's what you believe and how you behave. It's your 
theology, your ideology, and then the choices that we make. All that is it's how we live, however it is you live, and that is our walk. And here's Paul's warning. We must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And he actually says, you must no longer walk, but I'm saying we because I think we can read that text this way. Paul was not only writing to the Ephesians, but to all Christians who would receive this letter, which includes you and me. So we, here at Theta Baptist Church, we, Paul is saying, we must no longer live, we must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Okay, what does he mean by that? That's not clear right away. Because we don't think the same thing they did when we hear the term Gentiles. We may have no idea what to think. Gentiles, that was shorthand for people who were far off from God. We might use the word godless. That term was shorthand for people who did not know God, who did not love God, and who were not interested in living for him, which is exactly how the Ephesians, that's how they used to live. That's how they used to walk. But that is, Paul is saying, the way of the world. And they should no longer walk in a godless way, in a way that is without God. Paul describes the way the world thinks. He's going to get into living that way. Here's, here's how they, here's how you used to maybe think. And so here's how you used to live. First, what was going on in their heads? What's going on in their heads? How are they thinking? He uses three phrases. Futility of their minds. And then in verse 18, darkened in their understanding and then ignorance that is in them. You see those phrases. Put those together. They have something in common. Futility of their minds, darkened in their understanding, and ignorance that is in them. What is he saying about them? They don't know the truth. Futility, darkened, ignorant. They don't know something. What do they not know? They don't know the truth. They only know what other truthless people have taught them. G.K. Chesterton once wrote, The first effects of not believing in God is that you lose your common sense and cannot see things as they are. And I think that's true. I think that's very, very true. Through God, and only through God and His Word, do we come to understand the truth about ourselves? Do we come to understand the truth about God and understand the truth about the world that we live in? Because if you don't have God and you don't have His Word, you really you can't understand who you are as a human being. You can't understand other people. You can't understand this world that we live in. And you certainly cannot understand God. And so that was, the, that was the thinking. 
That's the way of the world. And because they do not know the truth, they are, he says, alienated from the life of God. Which is ultimately due, Paul says in verse 18, to what? Their hardness of heart. That means from a human perspective, the world does not know the truth of God because they do not want to know the truth of God. Their hearts are hardened to it. And you know that's true. You experience the truth of that. You remember maybe when that was true for you. And you just had no interest in the things of God. You didn't want to know the things of God. And you know it's true today as you look around and you see complete and total disinterest in the things of God. Why? Because hearts are hardened to God. That's the way of the world. That's the way the world thinks. Not interested in God, not knowing God, not understanding God. So what kind of life does that lead to? What kind of walk does that lead to? Verse 19. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So this is how the world, Paul is saying, thinks and acts. It is the way of the world, and Paul warns against it because Christians like you and me, evidently, we can fall back into it. Have you? Have you stopped meditating on God's word, maybe, and lost perspective? Have you started taking in the, the world's way of thinking and the world's philosophy? In an unprecedented way, we're inundated all the time, all the time with the way the world thinks. And if we're not filtering all those messages on the news, on social media, in the conversations around you, if we're not filtering that kind of thinking and that ideology and those opinions, if we're not filtering it through the Word of God, then we're consuming it. And we're taking it in. And we will begin to think the way the world thinks. And then what will happen? Well, then we'll begin to fall into more and more sin. Our hearts will begin to be hardened. We'll, we'll do exactly what Paul is warning against. He's saying, be very careful not to fall back into the way of the world. So there are two ways to live. And that, Paul describes, is the way of the world. Now, alternatively, what is the way of Christ. This is very different, and Paul sets it forward in verses 20 through 24. That's how the world thinks and lives. Here's how we ought to think and live. Verse 20, but, it's contrast now, that is not the way you learned Christ. Sharp. You don't think that way. You don't live that way, Christian. That is not the way you learned Christ. We, 
We were ignorant. We were darkened in our understanding. We were, but now, Paul says, we learned. What happened to you and to me? You learned Christ. That's what happened. That's the difference between you and the world. You learned Christ. And so now, you think, we think differently. We see ourselves differently. We see the world differently. We see God differently. We process it all differently. We think differently. Not only have we learned Christ, verse 21, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. I'm going to read that one more time. If you can let your eyes fall on verse 21. And I'm reading from the English Standard Version. You may have a different version, maybe a version that I think translates this even better. And I'll show you what I mean. Let's read it again. Verse 21. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. And I want to tell you something. That word about is not in the original text. And that's okay. There's a lot of words in your English translation that are not in the original Greek because we had to put an English word in to help make sense of it. So that happens all the time. But sometimes, maybe we add an English word that we shouldn't add. So if you have a, does anybody, and you can raise your hand, have a New American Standard Version or a King James Version? Maybe even the New King James Version. I'm not sure about that, but you'll see that they don't have the word about. That's why. Because it wasn't in the original, and those translators said, no, I don't know if that's supposed to be in there. Well, let's read the difference when you take out that word about. Because I think it should just read, not you have heard about Christ, but you have heard him. It's very different. And we're taught in him. Now, if you read it that way, you get the significance of what Paul is saying. Because he's saying, he's saying three things. He's saying, you have learned Christ. So he's the subject that you're learning about. You have learned Christ. He is the subject. You have heard him, not about him. You have heard him, which means he's the teacher. So you've heard Christ, you've learned Christ, he's the subject. And you've heard him, which means he is the teacher. And then he also says, you were taught in him, which means he's the classroom. So put all of that together. You and I are in Christ, learning from Christ about Christ. That's very significant. That's a, that's a big deal. That's wild. That's not just me teaching you about Christ. That's not just some teacher. That is, no, we are in, we've been put in Christ. Scripture says we are in him together. And in Christ, we are learning about Christ. And who is it that by his spirit is teaching us about Christ? Christ. Christ himself. 
That means Christians. By the Spirit of God, you have been completely immersed in Christ that you may fully know him. I wouldn't know how else to put that. You have been fully just immersed in Christ that you may fully know him. And so no wonder we think different from the world. No wonder we think differently. Our minds, verse 23, will tell us have been renewed. Our beliefs, our philosophy, our ideology, it is shaped, our worldview, it is shaped by the word of God. We take what people say, we take what teachers teach, and we think of it like this, we sift it through the word of God. So all the junk just goes right through. All that junk just goes right through. And we keep and hold on to what's compatible with the word of God. And if it's not, we reject it. So every day we're getting messages. This is this is this is the truth we're told. This is this is who people are and this is what the world is and this is what this is what money is for and this is what this is what you should believe about the family and this is what you should believe about retirement and here's what you should believe about work and here's how you should think about pleasure and here's what sexuality means and here's what your life is all about and here's what meaning is and here's what purpose is. I mean, come on, you, you're getting messages all day long about what you should think about that. But you've got to take all of that. It's hard work today, but we've got to take all of that and say, no, What does the word of God say? And if any of this is helpful or compatible with the word of God, okay, good, fine, great. And if not, it's got to go in the trash. I'm I'm not going to think that way. I'm not going to listen to that. I'm not going to process that. Because we're guided by the truth of God's word. So this is the way of Christ. This is how we think differently. And now because we think differently, obviously, we're going to live differently. This is the way of Christ. We're called, verse 22, to put off your old self. Which is another way of saying no longer walk as the Gentiles do. He's just using a metaphor now. A helpful metaphor. It's clothing. All right, You used to wear this. You used to dress like this, but now you've got you've to take that off and you're going to put on this. You ever think back and remember how you used to dress when you were a kid or maybe a young man or young woman? It's probably different. I mean, for me, it's very different than the way I dress now. I'm not saying one was right or one was wrong. You know, at the time, the way I was, it was pretty cool, I think. But it wouldn't work now definitely would not work now there's a contrast there's a difference 
And if I tried to put any of that on now, my wife wouldn't let me leave the house. It's a contrast, right? So I'm going to put that off. I'm going to put this on. This is the, the way of the world versus the way of Christ. We can all understand that. Okay, so yeah, I'm going to take this off. I'm not going to put that on anymore. That doesn't fit. That's not right. And now I've got new clothes that I'm going to put on. Okay, this old stuff, verse 22, it belongs to your former manner of life, right? The way you used to live. That belongs to your former manner of life and it's corrupt through deceitful desires. Right? I used to have deceitful desires. I used to think differently. I used to want different things. Not to say I'm not still tempted. But ultimately, as a Christian, what I want now is so different than what I used to want. I used to want, you know, my name and my fame and my glory and my way. And I really don't want that anymore. I mean, sometimes I do. But then I'm convicted. And I hate that. And I turn from it. And I ask forgiveness. Because at the end of the day, that's not what I want anymore. Truly. Truly, I don't want that anymore. I want, I want to go God's way. I want, I want God to be made much of, not Eric to be made much of. I want, I, I could care less about my legacy. I want God's legacy. That's really what I want. Now, why, why is that? Well, I've been changed from the inside out. Because you, you just can't make yourself want something you don't want. You can't make yourself want something you don't want, right? You either want it or you don't. You can't make yourself love something you don't love. You love it or you don't. It's at a heart, foundational level. And as Christians, we've been transformed. We've been changed so that I want things I didn't used to want. And you know what else? I hate things I didn't used to hate. What's going on? We've been transformed. We've been changed. That's who we were. This is who we are. So we're putting that off. We're putting this on. That's the way of the world. This is the way of Christ. He has softened our hearts. He's renewed our minds so that we think and then live differently. This is the way of Christ. Okay, let's get to the last part. These last verses. Practical application. If you're like me, you, you love when we get to these places because I want to know this, these things I'm learning, this truth I'm learning. Okay, now what does that look like? So what? What does that look like in my life? And Paul gets more practical in the second half of Ephesians than he gets anywhere else. I mean, you talk about meddling. I mean, Paul is about to meddle in our personal business. He gets very personal, doesn't he? In the verses and chapters ahead. He gets into your marriage and he gets into your relationship with your kids and he gets into your relationship at work. He gets into your private conversations. He's going to get into all of that and talk about the gospel implications. But here, before he gets that specific, and he will, in verses 25 through 32, he's just going to give these sort of overarching 
practical applications, and there's five of them. And it's like, these apply in all your relationships. It's going to get more specific, but like these five things, these are big time, and they apply to every single one of your relationships. So let's go through them. Here's what that new self that you and I must put on. Here's what it looks like in our relationships. If we're going to walk the way of Christ, these commitments must be common to every relationship you have. And I find myself going back to these over and over and over again. Number one, put away falsehood and speak the truth. Verse 25, therefore, it's the application word, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. A couple weeks ago, we read Paul already admonishing the Ephesians and us to speak the truth, you remember, in love. So he's assuming they've already decided to put away falsehood. He says it again here, speak the truth with your neighbor. And then he says something. He does what he's going to do with several of these exhortations. He gives a motivation to do it in the form of a reason. So he says, here's a practical application. Now let me motivate you to do that by giving you a really important reason that you should do it. And here's the reason that we should speak truth to one another. And it's, it's interesting. Some of these are surprising. We wouldn't necessarily go to these reasons right away. He's saying, speak the truth to your neighbor because we are members one of another. That's why. Speak the truth. Why? Because we are members one of another. The motivation for speaking truthfully is that we are profoundly connected as Christians in a local church. Remember, that's where all this gets worked out. It gets worked out in your local church. It applies everywhere, but he's writing to this church in Ephesus. It's for us here at Theta Baptist. Those Christians you're running with, those Christians you're living with, those Christians you're seeing week in and week out, those Christians who know you and you know them. The good, the bad, the ugly, not just superficial, but underneath. Hard words sometimes, soft words conflict, like all that that gets worked out in your family, in your church family. He says, we are profoundly connected to one another, so speak the truth, right? It's one thing to be dishonest with the salesman on the other end of the phone. If you're like me, I don't have a real hard time doing that. <laughs> I'm busy right now. I'm not busy, but as far as he's concerned, I'm busy because I'm not going to stay on this phone call. That's one thing, to be dishonest with someone you don't know on the other line of a phone, but it is another entirely to be dishonest with your Christian brother or sister. Friends, it's a really big deal. We are members of one another. We have been united together in this sacred bond, 
as a church family. And so, and so we must be committed to speaking the truth to one another. If you don't have the truth in a relationship, you've got nothing, right? You know this. You've experienced this in your relationships or your marriages where there's been times or seasons maybe where there was dishonesty. Is there anything more difficult? Is there anything that can rip out the ground underneath you than dishonesty? Because it's like, well, how can we have any kind of a relationship or communicate if I don't know that what you're telling me is true and you don't know that what I'm telling you is true? It's a very big deal. So it is in the church. Okay, number two. Second, overarching practical application, all your relationships, be angry and do not sin. I love these verses, 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now, I am helped by the beginning of that verse because it says, be angry. Go ahead. Be angry. Paul expects Christians to be angry sometimes. Understand, anger is not a wicked emotion. A good Christian will be angry at times. According to John Stott, he wrote, There is a great need in the contemporary world for more Christian anger. We human beings compromise with sin in a way in which God never does. In the face of blatant evil, we should be indignant, not tolerant, angry, not apathetic. If God hates sin, his people should hate it too. If evil arouses his anger, it should arouse ours too. So Paul is not saying, as this is sometimes misquoted, Christians don't ever get angry. What he is saying is, what? Do not sin in your anger. How do I do that? I just felt like I had to give you two just important questions to ask yourself whenever you're angry. And the two questions that I'm very helped by are, why am I angry and how am I angry? That's where we can work out whether or not this is right or wrong. Okay, why are you angry? In other words, am I angry over something God would be angry about? Or am I angry because somebody personally offended me? Now, I'll tell you, most of the time I'm angry is not righteous. I'm not angry over something that God would be angry about. I'm angry because someone ticked me off. And it, just, it bugged me. It irritated me. That's why I'm angry. So i got to ask the question, okay, why? And that's not good anger. Okay, so why am I angry? And then how am I angry? Okay, so what are you angry about? And then what happens when you are angry and you express your anger? Are you under control, for example? Many of us, when we get angry, we're not under control. What are the effects of your anger? Does it lead to good things or does it create more problems? These are good questions to ask as we evaluate our anger because the Bible says be angry, but do not sin. And then another great question, the one that Paul is going to bring up here, is how long does your anger last? How long does it last? Paul says, you've all heard this, 
Do not let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, don't stay angry. That's a problem. Don't stay angry. Leads to bitterness, resentment, wrath. Keep short accounts. My mom would say, take out the trash. Get rid of it. Figure it out. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Then the reason he gives in verse 27, here's the reason he gives for this one, is that if you hold on to anger, you are giving opportunity to the devil. Again, we might not think of that right away. Why shouldn't I hold on to anger? Why shouldn't I be angry? Because you're going to give opportunity to the devil. If you are, listen, if you're sinfully angry, you are giving the devil an opportunity to drive a wedge between you and others. Therefore, we must be angry over the right things and in the right way, Paul is saying. Okay, number three. What's the third practical application Paul gives here? Work hard for what you need. Verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. The way of Christ is to work hard for what you need. The way of the world is to look for shortcuts or to take what is not yours or dishonest gain. There are many ways to dishonestly get what you need. You could cheat other people. You could lie to other people. You could take advantage of other people. You could borrow without the intention of paying back. You could unnecessarily rely on the government, maybe a practical application even. So we think differently. And here again, while there's lots of good reasons we could think of to work for what you need, it honors God, right? These aren't the reasons Paul gives, but we could list them off. It honors God. It's, a, it's an example to others. It's good for your body and soul. It, it's a, it provides for your family. But here's the reason Paul gives. Work hard for what you need. That's the way of Christ. Why? And he says, labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. That's one of the things as our boys have grown up that we've we've tried to tell them, we've tried to encourage them, think about, think about. Our oldest is 21, Brady's 19, 17, 14. They're all, you know, about to be out. One's out and the rest are close behind. And we've always encouraged them, think about. Think about this. Think about your future. And you need to work hard. You need to work hard. And as God would allow it, and we've told all of them this, make as much money as you faithfully can. Absolutely. Make as much money as you faithfully, honoring the Lord, as you faithfully can. And then what's the reason? Well, rooted in this verse, what we've tried to tell them so that you can give it to others. So that you can share. 
He's not calling us to monasticism. He's not calling us to give everything away. He's not calling us to not work hard. He's not calling us to not make money. No, quite the contrary. He's calling us to work hard so that you do have resources. And here's, here's a reason, and there's lots of good reasons, but here's the reason that Paul gives, so that you've got something to share with people who are in need. When someone you know or someone you love or you hear about something, you're able to help with a little or a lot. just depends on what you've got. But you're able to share with those in need. That's the motivation behind working hard. And that is the way of Christ. Okay, two more. Almost done. Number four, use your mouths for good. Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. First, he says it negatively. Don't let words come out of your mouth that are going to tear people down. Instead, he puts it positively. Only let words come out of your mouth that will build others up. That's not flattery, not making things up. Flattery is just telling people what they want to hear the goal of flattery is just making people feel better about themselves and it's actually kind of an ugly thing and a dishonest thing and we've already been admonished to speak truthfully so it's not that paul says as fits the occasion build others up with your words as fits the occasion in other words you you, you've got whoever it is that god has brought in front of you you have this this person and you you have a mouth okay you get this person and you've got this mouth, and then you've got an occasion. So what are you going to say that fits the occasion? What is this person going through? You know, where are they at? What are they dealing with? What's, what's happening to them? What is the circumstance that you're speaking into? And then we want to say something that they need to hear that will be for their good. This is the way of Christ. And sometimes, parents, you certainly know this, that means hard words. That means saying something sometimes that somebody doesn't want to hear, but you actually love them so much that you're not going to not tell them. And they may not take it as building them up, but you know at times that's exactly what you're doing. You're looking to use your mouth for good. Verse 29, we learn that when we do this, we can be God's means of grace. Verse 29, we give grace to those who hear. And then he gives the reason for using our mouths for good in verse 30. Uh, it's a very unique and effective motivation. Maybe because this is particularly hard for us. I mean, the misuse of our tongue toward people in our family and church, that's not a new problem. It's been going on for a while. So he says this, when we do that, it grieves the Holy Spirit, the very one who has sealed us for the day of redemption. So in the moment, friends, maybe you don't care about grieving your brother or sister but do you care about grieving the Spirit of God? If you do, 
then commit yourself to using your mouth for only good. Now finally, number five, be kind. Be kind. Verse 31 and 32. So he said, put away falsehood and speak truth. Be angry and do not sin. Work hard for what you need. Use your mouths for good and now be kind. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Again, he says it negatively, don't do this. Positively do this. He describes the kindness in verse 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. A primary way our kindness is expressed is through our forgiveness of others. And one of the things we do for one another is we give one another lots of opportunities to forgive us. Lots of opportunities to forgive us because we will sin against one another. And how do we forgive? Because that's very hard to do. Be sermons on that, and there is. But we consider Christ's forgiveness of you. It is his forgiveness of me that both motivates and enables me to forgive others. Without Christ, I wouldn't be able to let go of those offenses. But I'm very helped when I remember the many ways I've sinned against God. And he's removed that as far as the east is from the west. Been so kind to me. So I can extend that to others. It's good news, isn't it, that we don't have to wonder if Christ will forgive us. That's unique to Christ. Hmm. I suppose I think that in every relationship I have on this earth, there's probably a line I could cross. There's probably something I could do. And I would be very uncertain whether or not the other person would forgive me. And I'm thinking of even my closest relationships. But we can be totally, completely, 100% certain that Christ will forgive us. His disposition, his permanent disposition toward us is one of kindness. We sin against him, he remains kind. His disposition is, it's warm. It's not cold. And so when we come to Christ seeking forgiveness, he's, he's warm. And so that, that warmth from our Savior, it, it welcomes confession. Like I can confess here. I can confess to you because I'm not, I'm not worried about what's on the other side of this confession. 
his warmth, it, it welcomes confession, and it promises, before I even confess, it promises forgiveness. And the way of Christ is to seek to live the same way. As the way of Christ in all of our relationships. He's going to get more specific in the chapters to come, but these apply to every single relationship you'll ever have. We must put away falsehood and speak truth. We must be angry and not sin. We must work hard for what we need and not take advantage of one another. We must use our mouths for good, and we must be kind, tender-hearted, and forgiving one another. Now, in conclusion, there's a lot of do in these verses. I don't know if you feel that, but I do when I read verses like this. Like, There's a lot of stuff I want to do here. A lot of things as a Christian I feel like I need to do. And I got to do better at because I'm not so good at any of these things. I got to be more kind and I, I got to be more loving and I need to be more careful with what I'm saying with my mouth and I've got to work harder and I've just, it's a lot. For those of you who are here and, and you're Christians and I expect that that is, is most of you, you might, you might hear these exhortations and scripture and you you might be convicted of a particular sin okay and if you are i would invite you to repent i would invite you before the lord and if you need to before another person i'd invite you to confess that sin i was really convicted by this it's wrong and i need to stop and you should confess and you should know that you will be forgiven by Christ. And you should set your mind and heart again to put off the old and put on the new and figure out how to fight that particular sin. So if you've got like a specific sin that just the Holy Spirit's convicting you, you know, that's what we do with that as a Christian. But I do want to say this. Because in my pastoral experience, this is so many Christians. This is the experience of so many Christians. When you hear these practical, you got to do this, and we got to do that, and, and we got to do this, and you just feel like a failure. You just hear it, and you feel guilty, and feel ashamed, and you feel like a failure, and it's not attached to some particular sin. It's just like you can feel like when you hear sermons like this, like I'm just not, I'm not doing this good enough. And you got all kinds of stuff, maybe like I don't pray enough. I watch too much TV. I'm not patient enough. My quiet time is not long enough. I don't do this or that as much as I should. I, I probably shouldn't have bought that new refrigerator. I mean, whatever it is, right? We can just begin when we think about these practical applications and the call of the gospel that we're called to live these lives that are so different, to live this way of Christ, that we can just get this low-flying sense of guilt and I'm not good enough and ashamed and I feel like a failure and I would not want you to leave this morning feeling like that. If there's a particular sin... Okay, deal with it. But if it's just this, I'm just not, I'm not cutting it. You know what you need? If and when you feel like that, 
You need the comfort of the gospel. You need the good news. You need the comfort of the gospel. Because I'll tell you what, friends, the gospel is not do these five things and Jesus will love you. That's not the gospel. In fact, that kind of thinking is anti-gospel. That kind of thinking, I obey, therefore I'm accepted by God. I had a good day, so tonight I'm going to bed feeling pretty good about my relationship with God. I had a bad day. I screwed up a lot. So I'm not feeling good about God's acceptance and love. Hey, all that stuff, that is that's gospel-destroying thinking. Friends, the comfort of the gospel is I am accepted and I am as loved as I could ever be by Jesus right now. And it has nothing to do with what I did or didn't do today. I'm accepted, therefore, I want to obey him. But man, don't get those flipped. And our minds just want to flip those, especially in our like performance-driven culture. So I've got a good day. Okay, I'm good with God. I'm going to sleep well. I have a bad day. I'm bad with God, right? And I've just got to constantly deal with this. And I feel like a failure and I feel guilty and I'm not good enough. And it's not any particular sin. It's just like, I'm just not doing it. You need to just, you need to drag all that guilt. It's not attached to any sin. You need to drag all that feeling like a failure and you need to drag that out into the light of the gospel until it shrivels up and dies. That's what we've got to do with that every day. So friends, if, if you're convicted of a particular sin this morning, when you hear Paul's exhortation to be kind and, and all of this, then deal with that sin. But if you feel the weight of this way of Christ, then you feel like you're just not cutting it and you're a failure and this and that. Friends, join the club. I understand feeling like that because I often feel like that. And now let's together remind ourselves of, of why Paul spent three chapters before he even got into how we should live. Three chapters telling us how secure we are in Christ, how loved we are by Christ. And remember, if you have, if you have a great day tomorrow, right, you feel like you just nail it. I mean, maybe you'll have one of those days. I don't have them very often. Maybe you're like, you know, my quiet time was good. I was nice to everybody. And I just really feel like I honored the Lord. Understand this. Jesus is not going to love you more tomorrow night because of that. Because he already loves you as much as he could possibly love you. Or maybe tomorrow hits and it's you know, more like my days. And at the end of the day, you're going, I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I did this. And holy smokes, what am I going to do about that? And like, am I ever going to be the Christian that I feel like I'm supposed to be? If you have a day like that tomorrow, do not think that Jesus loves you less. Because he loves you as much as he could possibly love you. 
every day. What is that? That's the gospel. How is that possible? Because he came and he lived that perfect life that you want to live, but you can't live. And he did it in your place. It counts for your life. And then the punishment and wrath that you deserve for the garbage you're going to do tomorrow. He took that punishment and he took that penalty. and He suffered and died and was alienated temporarily from God the Father out of his great love for you. So you're secure and you're loved. I needed to hear that today. I'm preaching to myself these last 20 minutes. And I'm sorry it went so long. I hope it was good for you too, though. Let's pray. Father in heaven.